Welcome to The Driven Entrepreneur, where we sit down with visionaries, trailblazers, and entrepreneurs and discover why and how they do what they do. We'll get the backstory, plus plenty of life and business lessons along the way. Here's your host, Matt Browning. Hey, this episode is brought to you by my very own NLP practitioner course. I've been teaching neuro-linguistic programming, or NLP, for nearly 15 years. It is the most powerful tool for communication on the planet, and it can be yours today. For a very limited time, I'm giving away my entire NLP course workbook for free. Go to nlpwithmatt.com. All the patterns, all the tools, and the techniques of NLP in the complete course workbook, the same one that we use to teach our live certification classes, yours free. NLPwithmatt.com. Get it today. Let's get back to the show. What's up? What's up? What's up? Welcome back to The Driven Entrepreneur. I don't know why I start episodes saying, what's up? What's up? What's up? I never do that when I sit down with coffee with you. So I'm just going to say, hey, how are you? Good to see you guys. Good to be with you. It's Matt Browning, Driven Entrepreneur. And I'm back this week with another Driven Entrepreneur. We've been having a multitude of different kinds of conversations on the show. This week, we're going to jump really deep into um, success in business with a really just genuine, authentic guy who's been around this for decades now, Mr. Mike Robbins. He's the author of five books including this brand new book we're going to get into called We're All In This Together, all about creating a team culture of high performance, trust, and belonging. And that got released, of course, earlier in the year in 2020. And for the past two decades, Mike has also, of course, been a sought-after speaker, a consultant, doing keynotes, running his own seminars for top organizations around the world. Some of his client list includes, how about Google? We've heard of that. Wells Fargo, Microsoft, eBay, Harvard University, Gap, LinkedIn, the Oakland A's, and countless others. Um, his work's been featured in the New York Times, Harvard Business Review, NPR, ABC News. He's a reg- regular contributor to Forbes, so high five for that. Um, and he hosts his own weekly podcast. His books have been translated into 15 different languages, so I can't think of a better representative of someone who has a message that the world is gobbling up than Mike Robbins. Mike, welcome to the show, man. How are you? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. Dude, I, uh, I've really enjoyed We've been on this kind of pre-tape chat for a few minutes, and I've already <laughs> just genuinely enjoyed just being in your presence. You've been around this for a long time. Um, yeah. and, and doing this on your own as well, which I think is really interesting. Did you, when you started off doing some of this training and work, did you ever work for a company, get your feet wet that way? Or were you always in it for yourself? <laughs> you know, I tried really hard. Nobody would hire me. Um, I started my business, Matt, um, or got the idea to really start it in 2000. I got laid off um, from my dot-com job. I was working in San Francisco for an internet company. And you know, a couple of years yeah, exactly. A couple of years prior to that, actually, my pro baseball career ended. So that had been my dream from the time I was a little kid. I grew up in the Bay Area in California and, you know, played baseball, got drafted out of high school by the New York Yankees, didn't sign with the Yankees because got a chance to play at Stanford in college, then got drafted by the Kansas City Royals and did sign a contract, um, ended up blowing my arm out. I was a pitcher, tore ligaments in my elbow when I was in the minor leagues. So, you know, started baseball at seven was forced to retire after three surgeries at the age of 25. So was devastated by the injury. Didn't know what the heck I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Got my job because I needed to pay the rent and figure out what I was going to do when I got home. 
during the dot-com boom, it was relatively easy and then got laid off, but had started over the last couple of years of my baseball career. And then especially once I got injured, it gotten really interested in personal growth and development and really trying to sort myself out through my own challenge, but also realize the power of my mind and the power of relationships and all of these intangible aspects of success that I'd never really been taught. And so hey, Mike, I had some, what advice yeah. would you give just before we move to the next part of that? Cause it, so much just came out growing up with a dream since you were seven. And here's what's yep. interesting. I don't relate to that. And I always wish I did. A lot of people mm. grow up as a kid and they go, Oh, I've always wanted to be a X, whatever it is. My right. closest dream was I've told a story before I wrote a note to run away from home at six to be an ice cream man. <laughs> Because I figured what better thing to do than live in the ice cream truck, but I'd never really had a career dream, right? What advice would you give to a young, maybe let's call it a high school age kid that has had that childhood dream that, you know, is this a good thing to be super hyper focused on? This is my life. Is it better to be well-rounded and taking a lot of things? Um, Maybe about baseball or generally any dream from childhood. How would you approach that differently if you would approach it differently at this point? Looking you know, that's a, it's a really good question, man. I don't know if anybody's ever asked me specifically that. I mean, I think it's a blessing and a curse. Honestly, I only know from my own experience. I mean, I was literally seven years old and I started playing t-ball and I loved it. And I was like, and I was just this pretty crazy kid that like I marched right up to my mother and I said, mom, what's the best college in the country? Cause I wanted, I knew I wanted to go to school and education was important. She said, Harvard. I said, okay, I'm going to play baseball at Harvard. And then, I don't know, a few weeks later, I told some kids at school and they were making fun of me saying, Harvard's baseball team's no good. And I said, oh. And then I went home and said, mom, what's the best school in the country? That's because they don't have me on it yet. Right. I said, what's the best school in the country that has a good baseball team? And she said, oh, that'd probably be Stanford, which was about an hour from where I grew up. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go to Stanford and play baseball. And I was literally like maybe eight years old, Matt. And so again, it's just the way I'm wired. And I would say the curse part of that and I lived this as a kid and as an adolescent and into my early adulthood is, you know, you can miss out on opportunities. You can miss out on seeing things and learning things by being so singularly focused. I would say the blessing part of it though, as painful as it was when I hurt my arm and baseball ended, I still had that thing within me that was like, I got to find what I'm passionate about and what's next for me. I knew that, you know, online ad sales, what I was doing in the late nineties wasn't it but I was searching for that. And it was like, I wanted to satiate that part of me that could get really passionate about something and really dive into it. So I think, look, if you're naturally wired that way, that when you're seven years old or 10 years old or 15 or whatever, you know, I want to do this for the rest of my life. Great. But it's also like you and I both know life happens and it doesn't really unfold the way we expect it to. So I think, you know, we got to learn a lot about, you know, resilience and about dealing with disappointment and failure in general but we can set ourselves up if we decide when we're you know, a young kid, I'm going to do this. Because I was quite depressed for a few years and sort of disoriented by not knowing. I mean, I'd been Mike the baseball player from the age of seven and it became my identity. And so when that got taken away, I had to really do some deep inner work to go, wait a minute, who am I without this? Obviously, there's much more to life than playing baseball and I'm much more than just a baseball player. But even though I knew that rationally and I was relatively intelligent enough to know that, I didn't know that emotionally. And that was part of what really pushed me in the direction of, hey, I need to do some deeper, more, you know, inner work to figure myself out. It's like our friend Tony Robbins says, you know, it's like, you know, learning how to the science of achievement is one thing, but the art of fulfillment is something totally different. And, you know, being successful without being able to enjoy it is actually really failure. 
Wow. Um, so when you, so the advice today then is if you were to go back, I think when you talked about identity, yeah, I think that's so interesting because intrinsically, yeah, your identity is so much greater than Mike, the baseball player, but yep. practically it actually hadn't been, it sounds like right. Practically in, in right. time management, everyday life, the majority of your thoughts, behaviors, actions, lifestyle was around that. So totally. So would you, if, cause I think a singular focus can be really good for achievement for sure. When yep. you look at something now, let's just kind of go today, let's go into business. Do you yep. look at that success as singular focus now and kind of identity or do you, because you know your identity is greater and bigger and more robust and you are so much more than what you do, yep. does that filter into your life and your, your calendar throughout the week? Do you do a lot of different things or are you kind of still primarily focused on something? You know, it's funny. I would say in my DNA, there's still a lot of that singular focus. So it's still a constant practice for me to have to expand. I mean, one of the big lessons that I learned through baseball that ultimately is what kind of drove me into speaking and coaching and became the key message that I started to share my story. And I still, 20 years later, will still often share aspects of this was, you know, I spent all those years playing, Matt, and I was actually really good, but I didn't give myself hardly that much credit because I spent most of my time thinking I wasn't good enough comparing myself to everyone around me and literally like holding my breath, hoping that I didn't screw it up because it was such an intense competitive environment that it wasn't until I finally hurt my arm and I realized baseball was over that I was like, oops, damn, I think I missed the point. Like I was able to step back without arrogance and go, I was good at that. Jeez, I, I wish the only regret that I had was that I didn't fully enjoy it. And I think that that to me is a very universal challenge that a lot of us face as entrepreneurs, as people who are interested in success. It's like, how can we be focused on the next step, the next level, the next achievement, whatever it is, genuinely, but also be able to appreciate where we are. You know, and often really in enjoying life, the ride. Yeah, often in life, we don't appreciate what we have until it's taken away, right? And then we go, ooh, it could be, it could be love, it could be health, it could be, you know, something that we enjoy, you know, even just day-to-day -day activities as we've learned throughout this year or whatever. It's like, oh, wow, I didn't realize how important that was until I couldn't do it anymore or until I didn't have it. And so part of my practice has been, and this became the focus, like my very first book that I wrote came up back in 2007, it's called Focus on the Good Stuff. And a lot of my work, especially in the early days, was really about gratitude and appreciation. Can we appreciate what we have while we have it? Because at some level, without getting too philosophical, it's like everything's temporary, but we don't live like it is. We live, even our businesses, even our, our marriages, our families that are so important to us. It's like, look, this is temporary. This isn't going to last forever. So the question is, am I going to actually show up and not only achieve something great, but actually enjoy the achievement while it's happening? Even ironically and weirdly, can I enjoy some of the challenge or even some of the failure? Like I learned a lot about failure in baseball, whether you follow baseball or not, there's a ton of failure in baseball, right? You get three hits out of 10 and you're a superstar. That's, That's a right. lot of failing. When you think about like, if you ever hit like, you know, a, a no hit game as a pitcher, man, mm -hmm. like that's, you, you succeeded. That was your biggest day, but that was the worst day for the entire other team. Like, that, exactly. It exactly. wasn't just, I messed up here and there. It was like, nobody hit anything terrible. Yeah. You can learn a lot yeah, from, from the failure. Certainly. Um, for what, sure. What's your take right now on, uh, on, I guess maybe in the moment, right? Like utilizing that. Cause I think a lot of people listening, you know, you've heard, you know, there's no failure. There's only feedback and, and, and right. principles like that. 
I find those are very easy to understand consciously, mm -hmm. very difficult to integrate emotionally. How do yeah. you approach that more maybe subconsciously, more emotionally, more in practice, if that makes sense? Really <laughs> taking that on and not not just saying it out loud on Twitter and then focusing internally at night going, ah, I suck. Yeah. Look, it's hard. It's a practice. I mean, one of the things, so, you know, I started my speaking and coaching business back in 2001. You know, I get laid off. I had a mentor ask me this question, Mike, if you could do anything and you weren't worried about paying the rent or you, you know, weren't afraid you were going to fail and, you know, all the, the questions, you know, the sort of cheesy, but important coaching questions, what would you do? And I was like, well, I would, I would write and I would speak and I would try to inspire people. And he was like, well, great. You seem really clear. You should go do that. I'm like, now? And he said, yeah, why not? And I was like, well, because I'm 26 years old and I don't know anyone and nobody knows me and I don't know how the hell to do this. Like, what are you talking about? That sounds insane. And he was like, well, you could wait until you think you figured it out or you could just go do it. And that's actually back to your question earlier about did I go work for someone else? I looked for a company who could hire me. Could some training company, some organization, small or large, hire me, teach me some of how this business works, how I could get up in front of people and start speaking and coaching and doing the things I wanted to do. And nobody was hiring at the time. And one of the things that I realized, Matt, is I have an enormous amount of experience failing. I don't like it. It's not fun. It's not my favorite. But again, thinking back to all those years in baseball, gosh, I failed a lot and I hated failing, but I knew I knew how to fail and I knew it wouldn't kill me. And so I thought to myself, okay, here's what I'm going to do. This was my business plan because <laughs> people were also like, go back to school, get a degree, get a, you know, a master's or a PhD in psychology or in, you know, organizational development or, and that sounded awful to me. Like I love to learn. I always hated school. Even though I had done well in school, I was like, I don't want to go back to school if I don't have to. Yeah, it's a good way to so put gonna, that. I feel the same, same way. Yeah. Love to learn said, in school. <laughs> but I was like, I'm going to give myself a year. This was, I've started January, 2001. I'm going to start this business. I'm going to give myself one year. And I'm going to what I call design my own curriculum, which means I'm going to take whatever workshops or classes or listen to, you know, books on tape at the time or read books or meet people who are coaching and speaking and doing the kind of work that I want to do. I'll spend the whole year. At the end of the year, I'll probably be broken in debt. But if I went back to school, I'd be broken in debt. So what's the difference? I just wouldn't have a degree at the end. And if I can't figure out how to get this business off the ground, I will somehow or another find a job because I know some people I, I was in sales for a couple of years. Like, I'm, like, I'll figure it out. You know what I mean? That was kind of my idea. And my whole goal that first year was just like, make enough money to pay the rent so I don't have to go get a real job and see if I can get this business off the ground. And if I and, can ask you this, you don't have to answer this specifically, but what financial state are you in? Like in this moment at 26, you're about to start, you know, are you like, hey, because I think one of the questions is replacing income and do I have right. freedom to do that? So if you're making 200 grand a year as a corporate executive, it's a right. lot harder in some ways to start a business. But man, like when well, I started my speaking career, I was living in my buddy's trailer making $0. So totally. anything I did was so easy in a way. Where were you at? And because like, that's your, your fallback situation. If it doesn't totally. work, all I need to do is make X. Could you speak to that a little bit? Dude, I was broke and I come from a family like <laughs> sing, single mom. We didn't have any money. That's I was correct. broke. I had a little bit of, I got a tiny little severance package from the company that laid me off, which was such a blessing. Like, I mean, I'm talking like, I don't even remember. It was probably like seven, eight grand. So it was like, I put that in the bank. It's like, okay, that could sustain me. And this, I got laid off at the end of July in 2000. And that basically, I lived on that money and a little bit for the rest of that year, pretty much. Wow. I, I figured out living in San Francisco at the time in the year 2000, which I thought was incredibly expensive. Of course, I laugh at it now. 
I figured I needed to make about $2,000 a month to pay my rent and cover my bills and expenses and have a little, and if I could make three grand a month, I could like go out and, you know, have a few drinks and have some fun and maybe even take a girl out on a date. Like that was my mentality at the time. And so when I started in 2001, I was down to zero. I had no money. And I was like, I have to figure out how to make a couple thousand dollars a month doing this coaching speaking thing. And, you know, played around with some temp jobs and some other little things to try to supplement my income. But it was pretty lean that first year, that first second year. I mean, I went, you know, some credit cards and different things and smoke and mirrors. But ultimately, it was like, I didn't have to go find a job. And I was able to start figuring out a way to make some money. And where I found, you and I were talking about this before we hit record on the podcast here on the interview, I found that, oh, you know what? A bunch of people don't know me. So it's hard to set up my own seminar and have people come. But I figured out, oh, these companies, they have a need for speakers and trainers internally. And I only worked in the quote unquote corporate world for a couple of years in these dot coms. So it was sort of not even really the corporate world. But what was happening at that time, Matt, was a bunch of Gen Xers like me who were in their mid to late 20s or early 30s were going in to get jobs at tr more traditional companies like Chevron and Wells Fargo and, you know, places like that. And there were some issues in terms of, you know, generational differences and communication differences. And I found a little niche that I could go talk about teamwork and collaboration using my sports background and understanding what I understood about people. And hey, we can all get along and work together and leverage each other's strengths. And people my own age would listen to me because we were kind of peers. And even the folks who were a little bit older, they were curious, like, what do these dot-com kids have? They know something because there was some cool stuff going on there in the 90s for a little while. So I found that I had a little bit of credibility and the message started to resonate. And then I just started getting invited back and invited back. And I was like, oh, I can actually build my speaking business inside the corporate world, not pretending to be some corporate guru that knows all about how corporate, because I didn't. But no, you like, have one I, little niche where you're like, I'm the teamwork guy for generations yep. to collaborate. And I want to yep. hone in on that for a second if I can, Mike, because you've done something and, and over the last 20 years been able to accomplish something that as we talk about it today, and it's interesting, you said 26, I started my speaking career at 26. So, but that mm -hmm. was 2006. So a little yep. bit, you know, a few years off. Yep. But that, that similar where it's like, okay, yeah, I had a real estate background. I ran my own company doing that, but I didn't have anything else. You know, I didn't have this traditional education and I didn't have, you know, uh, any celebrity or whatnot. I want to hone in on what, what got you in the door for maybe one of the first companies. Did you get paid? Did you do it for free? Did they pay you to speak? Did they pay you to train? <laughs> what was the unique, you know, and if we can get real, yeah. real on this, because you're talking 20 years ago. Yeah. I think coaches and entrepreneurs who want to break into that corporate world, it can seem so death-defying. If I talk to an well, entrepreneur to sell my program, that's the decision maker. Go totally. Fargo, it's like, who the heck do you talk to? What do you bring to the table? Anything at all that you could speak to about kind of that proposition of, of yeah. introduction, if you could. Well, someone told me early on, hey, you want to become a professional speaker, go give a hundred free talks and eventually someone will pay you. And I was like, okay, I can do that. I mean, that seems crazy. That's a lot of work, but I'll do it. And I went out and started giving talks like at my old high school, at the local Rotary Club, you name it. I'm just like, I'm going to start speaking, hone my message, try to get better at this thing that I was halfway decent at. I mean, I had some natural ability to speak, but I went to a coaching workshop. I got some coaching training through CTI the Coaches Training Institute. Sure. And I met a woman at the workshop who worked for a company called Sutter Health, which is like hospitals and medical centers here in California. 
And turned out part of her job, she hired speakers and trainers. And I told her during the workshop, I didn't lie and say I had done it, but that I was a motivational speaker. And she and I hit it off and we exchanged cards and I figured, oh, I'll wait for six months or a year till I get this business off the ground. And then I'm going to call her and see if we can do some business. She calls me, Matt, like three weeks later and is like, hey, Mike, oh, I'm so glad I got you on the phone. Listen, I have a problem. We have a big meeting next week at our big hospital in Sacramento and the speaker just canceled. And I told our CEO, don't worry, I got a great guy. <laughs> like, he's going to call you in like 20 minutes, but do me a favor. Don't tell him that I've never heard you speak. Cause I told him you were awesome. And I'm like, Oh gosh. And we, I get off the phone and I think to myself, okay, I'm not going to lie to this man, but if he calls and he doesn't ask like where else I've spoken before, I'm not going to say anything. And I got on the phone with this guy and we talked for like 20 minutes. He never asked me where else I'd spoken. He was a big sports fan. He liked baseball. We were talking about teamwork and he hired me and paid me $1,500, which literally felt like $15 million Absolutely. at the time to go give this speech to his 200 managers at his hospital. I was terrified when I walked in the room. I was, you know, just turned 27. I was probably the youngest person in the room, but the speech actually went halfway decent. And when I got done with that, I thought to myself, I can totally do this. They were happy. It was a good value exchange. And then it just, in my mind, I was like, oh, well, why couldn't I get $1,500 every time I do this? Because that went well. And I worked really hard on that. And it seemed to deliver some value. And so that's a, that was my first experience of getting paid to speak. But what I found over the years, what I really tried to do, and I still do 20 years later, that is I try to show up and talk about what I know about, connect with the real human beings that are in front of me, whether they're in person or they're on, you know, it's a Zoom call, whatever, wherever they are, and try to deliver value and really connect. And so much of what happens over all these years, five books in and all the stuff that I've done, I literally get emails and phone calls from people that I know or people that have seen me speak. That's still all these years later is by far the best way that I and my team are able to generate business is just by relationships. It's kind of an old school way of doing it. But it's like knowing people and meeting people and showing up and delivering value. To me, it's like I realized, oh, the corporate world is not some weird, scary place. It's just a bunch of people who are trying to do good work and they need motivation. They need ideas about how to connect with each other and customers and clients or prospects, just like everybody else. And so if you have a message that you think could resonate there, the nice thing too for me personally and what fits my personality is when I show up to give a speech at Google or Charles Schwab or wherever, I'm not selling anything. I'm just showing up to deliver value. They already paid me. And usually if it goes well, you know what happens? They pay I book you again. They pay me again. Someone else comes up and goes, could you do this at our meeting in three months? We can need that message. And you I want say, this sure. in this other department and so <laughs> forth. Right. And then, and then they buy a bunch of books and it's like, I didn't even sell the books. They just were like, we need that. We were going to get that. And then they buy like 500 books at a time. And it's like, oh my goodness. Hey, you, know how much time and, you know how much time and energy would have taken me to go sell 500 books individually? It's like, and one person just said, we'll get them for the whole division. And it's like, Thank you. I know exactly how much time and energy that, <laughs> <laughs> that takes to do that. Right. Mike, have you earlier on and even now, do you speak to like the non-paid gigs where you're going to speak at a seminar, conference, you're going to sell a program? Do you get into any of that kind of speaking or are you, you know, pretty I, primarily hire me, I go into the company and that's my deal? That's I'm mostly just hire me into the company. The truth of the matter is I've never been as successful or effective selling from the platform or even digitally, you know, online marketing of programs and things. It's not that I don't have any of those. It's just, I don't have as much. And so if someone invited me right now, Hey, come on my stage, you can sell whatever you want. 
I don't know that I would, you know, feel as comfortable or confident because for me, this is just me personally. When I get up on stage, my focus is really on engagement with the audience yes. and it feels like a, a sacred sort of contract that we make, even if it's just for 45 minutes or an hour, I'm there to connect with you authentically and deliver as much value as I can that's going to help your life or your business or your team or your family or whatever. Um, when, per, for me, when I start to sell, it just goes into a different place. And now I'm much more interested in buy my thing. And I hope you do it because I'm going to feel bad about myself if I don't. And like, it, I, you know, that's what happens for me. There are other people and friends of mine in this business. And I'm sure you and many people listening who are really, really good at that. And I admire and respect and appreciate it, especially when it comes from a place of like, I have this incredible program that can really transform your life or your business. I want you to have it. Awesome. But for me, this is part of why I set my business up the way that I did because it works well for my style and my approach and my personality. I like being in the room when I got no strings attached to the audience whatsoever. I, and I, I absolutely love that. When you've already gotten your yeah. paycheck before you walk on stage and one yep. person it's like, hey, I just got to satisfy that you know that I'm doing a great job. And that's the yep. only sale you can do 100% content. I love that. I want to talk yep. about your, the newest book too. So we're all in this together. And when I look back at 2020, you know, there's not a lot of, of times that I want to refund in life, but you know, <laughs> I heard somebody yeah. say by, by the time uh, March rolled around or by the end of March, it was like, Hey, 2020, my 90 day trials up. I want to refund. Yeah, no <laughs> um, it's been quite a year for really everybody around the world. And I think what you do has never been more relevant. Yeah. So when you look at your book, you know, we're all in this together. It's about team culture. I could ask you a bunch of different individual questions, but I think I'd rather hear what is your take? What's your heart on team culture, high performance in a company and maybe even, you know, in humanity, in the world, in the people in your neighborhood, the people in your family, what does that yeah. mean? And what are we finding inside that book? Well, I mean, one of the reasons I wrote this book and was really passionate about it coming out this year with this title. I mean, I didn't have any idea, of course, it was going to come out in the midst of what we've all been going through this year. But every team that I've ever been a part of, back when I was playing baseball, when, you know, I worked for a couple of different internet companies and in the last 20 years, as I've consulted with and worked with and spoken to a lot of teams, it's more the exception than the rule, Matt. But there's this thing that happens on a great team. And we've all been part of great teams in life. There's this thing that happens and it's sort of a magical, mythical, how does it happen? I don't know. It's still, we're all trying to figure it out, but something clicks. And what becomes more important is the collective, what we're doing together than simply just me and mine. And look, I don't believe that human beings are fundamentally selfish for the most part. I actually think we're hardwired to want to connect and collaborate and support each other. But the world we live in, understandably, even as entrepreneurs and business owners and people like we're looking out for ourselves. When you can create an environment where what you're doing collectively matters enough and is important enough and is inspiring enough that I'm willing to potentially sacrifice something of my own potential you know, success or my own ambition in order to really connect and engage in what we're doing. I think about this back when I was an athlete. It's like the few times I was on really great teams. It's like, of course, I wanted to be the star of the team. I wanted to have a great game. I wanted to be the man. But I just wanted to help the team win that mattered to me as much or more than my own, you know, recognition. And so we're all in this together is this sense of remembering that, hey, yeah, we may be different and we may have different passions and perspectives and personalities and skills, but like, there's really no them, it's all us. 
And that's not an easy thing actually for a group of people to do, even a family, but especially a team at work and in any type of work that we're doing. But when we're willing and able to do that, there's just something extraordinary that becomes available. And it's like, there's no way for me to achieve at the highest level personally if I'm not around other people who are supporting me to do that. And that's not a mutual exchange of support. Very, I couldn't answer that better. Now, guys, you should check this out. What a cool book. Um, it's mike-robbins.com slash together. And of course, you can get, we're all in this together wherever books are sold. How a culture of trust and belonging creates high-performing teams. Um, very, very cool. So I'm looking forward to, and of course, check out, you know, you got your podcast. I, I want to plug this too. It's called Shockingly, We're All In This Together. You can find <laughs> that anywhere you get podcasts. You'll get a nice, uh, beautiful picture of Mike with his hand in his pocket with his jacket uh, over there. It's just that, it's that look. And it's actually quite a good podcast and really interesting conversations. One of my favorite episodes earlier this year was Embrace Sweaty Palmed Conversations. <laughs> and, uh, yes. you know, again, what an interesting topic. Um, all about connecting and all about being present together. Mike, as we wind down here, it's kind of final question for you is, you know, when you look back, I asked you about your baseball career, but when you look back on your speaking career, just speaking the last sort of 20 years, if there's anything you would change about how you approached it or what you've done for a period of time, what would you change about that? Or would you leave it all the same? Hmm. Hmm. I mean, I feel really blessed about how it's unfolded. I think if there's one change that I would make. Um, it would just be, you know, the same thing I think when I think back on my baseball career is just like have more fun, enjoy it, and and even take some more risk because like, what do you really got to lose? You know, it's easy to see that in hindsight. It's harder to practice that in the moment. Yeah, it's almost like risks in the moment seem to be far <laughs> greater than they are in hindsight, right? Totally. Yeah, totally. Really good. Mike, hey, man, thank you for coming on. I sure appreciate your time and great to get to know you. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. All right, guys, that's the show this week. Wow, Mike Robbins, what a, what a superstar. Uh, we could go on and on. I want to have more conversations with him. Um, but definitely, if, you, if you're running a business, highly, highly consider having Mike come out and share that message. You can follow uh, Mike, of course, um, all over social media. Let's go Mike Robbins, where I'm just looking right here. We go LinkedIn was M Robbins. And his Twitter, he's really active on Twitter. It's Mike D Robbins. And then, of course, go check out the book. We're all in this together. And you can get it at mike-robbins.com slash together. There's a bunch of cool resources on that site as well. So go check it out. And then, of course, follow the show at Matt Browning, B-R-A-U-N-I-N-G, on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, wherever you get your social, that's where I am. And wherever you get your podcast, you can get this radio show on demand there as well. My thanks again to Mike Robbins. And my thanks again to you for listening. I love you. I appreciate you. Get out there and stay driven. Enjoy your week. And I'll see you next Friday. Another Driven Entrepreneur. All right. Bye-bye.